Thomas Carlyle, in 1840, wrote that world history is but the biography of great men. And yet, British history is filled with powerful, influential and dynamic women who actively changed the course of Britain forever. In this episode of the Present History Podcast, we're going to look at the history of women, women's rights, sexism and feminism. Through the lives of a number of incredible women, we will get a brief overview of British women's history from the Roman era to the present day. So, let's take a look into a history of being female and British. In 60 AD, Prasitagus, king of the Iceni tribe, died. His will left half his property to the Roman Empire and half to his young teenage daughters. When the Romans heard of this, they were outraged, marching to the Iceni capital and sacking it. They laid waste the homes, storehouses and villages of the kingdom, seizing the king's lands. As a beginning, Tacitus writes, his wife Bodicea was subjected to the lash and his daughters violated. Here, already, we see the disparity that existed between Celtic and Roman views of women and their place in society. To the Celtic tribes, they saw women as rightful heirs, worthy to rule the lands, capable of being leaders, priestesses and warriors. This was almost categorically opposite to the Roman view, who believed that women were too weak to rule and couldn't inherit. This horrific act became the catalyst for one of the greatest uprisings in Romano-British history. Bodicea amassed an army of up to 120,000 men, women and children, marching straight to Camelodunum, modern-day Colchester, and raising it to the ground. Throughout this rebellion, she and her army killed tens of thousands of Roman soldiers and citizens, mutilated Roman noblewomen, impaling them on spikes, destroying London, St Albans and Colchester. This was a catastrophe for the Romans, becoming a problem so great that the Emperor Nero even contemplated abandoning Britain altogether. What made it worse for the Romans, as Cassius Dio recorded, was that all this ruin was brought upon the Romans by a woman, a fact which in itself caused them the greatest shame. Among the greatest women in British history, Bodicea has to rank quite highly. But among some of the most vicious, violent and brutal leaders of either gender, she also has to be recognised. Her life and her uprising is also a vivid illustration of the perception of women during this time. To the Celts they could be powerful, they could be leaders and warriors, they could be heirs. To the Romans they could hardly be any of these things. They were to be confined to the home, raising the children and staying out of official business. So much so that in Roman Britain, makeup, jewellery and clothing became one of the only major ways in which women could express themselves in what was a deeply patriarchal society. After the Romans left Britain in 410 AD and the Anglo-Saxons began their invasions, we see a kind of reversal in the standing of women in society. In Anglo-Saxon Britain, women were near equals to men. They were able to intervene in a wide range of public affairs and had their rights protected by law. 
the Anglo-Saxons were also not entirely averse to the idea of following a woman either, as is shown in the life of Athelfled, the Lady of the Mercians. The daughter of King Alfred the Great, she rose to the throne of Mercia in 911 AD, when her husband, Athelred, died. Mercia was the most powerful kingdom in the south of England, making Athelfled one of the most powerful rulers in Britain. This was almost unprecedented, because while women had greater equality than they had ever had in the Roman era, to have a female leader was still a rarity. Ian Walker describes it as one of the most unique events in early medieval history. In Alfred's court in Wessex, women were not allowed any political position, and it was the Mercians who held the greater tradition of female involvement. Athelfled benefited from this, easily ascending to the throne and personally leading armies in expeditions and becoming a powerful ally to her brother, Edward, the new king of Wessex. She refortified towns and cities, built and extended defences, and set up bases for the repelling of Viking invasions. And she was to become renowned as a powerful warrior and leader. She fought back many Viking invasions, personally leading many of the armies into battle. As an Anglo-Norman chronicler wrote, she was a powerful accession to Edward's party, the delight of his subjects, the dread of his enemies, a woman of enlarged soul. The Anglo-Saxon era may have been a time of increased equality for women, but as the Norman years descended upon Britain, the position of women seemed to take a step backwards. The Britain the Normans built was deeply patriarchal, with the feudal system perpetuating a structure that prevented female land ownership, forbade female inheritance, and, despite the example of Athelfled, women were viewed as incapable of gathering or leading an army. Even if a woman did manage to inherit land, if all male descendants had died, she was swiftly married off to a man who would control her estates. Marriage wasn't really based on love, but on political, social and economic gain. As Angela Lucas records, young unmarried women of good lineage were carefully guarded as valuable assets, their virginity a precious, saleable commodity to be used to the best advantage when their time came to enter the marriage market. Because of this perception, here is where we see the rise of child brides, with one of the most shocking examples being a girl of just 13 being married to a man in his mid-twenties. This girl was Matilda, who married Henry V, the Holy Roman Emperor, in 1114. Four years later, Henry left to quash rebellions in his empire, leaving Matilda ruling as regent in his stead. It was here, despite all the challenges facing her in medieval society, that she gained first-hand practical experience of rule. She would use this later when her brother, William, the heir to the throne of England, died and the succession was thrown open. When her father, the King of England, died in 1135, her cousin Stephen seized the throne, backed by the Church of England. Matilda launched an invasion in 1139 to take her throne by force. She defeated Stephen in battle and captured him in Lincoln in 1141. She was due to be coronated in Westminster, but this was ended by mass opposition from the crowds of London. This meant that she was never officially the Queen of England. But, much like Athelfled, she gained the title Lady of the English. 
As the war continued and collapsed into a stalemate, she headed back to Normandy, leaving her son Henry to continue the fight. He eventually became king, and Matilda remained a powerful political force during his reign, helping to negotiate the fallout after the murder of Thomas Becket and giving him political advice, working closely with the church to found monasteries and abbeys. Her story emphasises the differing views to women between Britain and Europe, with the Holy Roman Empire happy to have a female regent, but England refusing to have a queen. This was a view that became prevalent in the next few hundred years, with women continuously overlooked for inheritance, manoeuvred like pawns for political and economic gains, and viewed as only as valuable as the children they could birth. The Tudor era is an era well known for being a powerful and vivid example. In Tudor society, inequality between the sexes was rife. In occupations, gender roles, inheritance and images of the ideal. Sometimes the inequality went so deep that it even got a little weird. With a widely held belief being that baby girls only obtained their souls at 90 days gestation. 44 days after boys. During the Tudor era, most girls could expect some level of education, but not to the same extent or standard of boys. The belief being that it would be dangerous for women to learn Latin or Greek, in case it steered them towards vice. Much like the years before, all women were legally subject to their husbands, and were unable to own property, enter into agreements, or even write their own wills without their husband's consent. They were constantly pushed back into the home, with the responsibility for running the house, raising the children, and overseeing the servants resting purely on the shoulders of women. This disparity continued even into religion. As the Reformation swept across Britain, Henry VIII viewed it as dangerous for women to read the Bible for themselves and come to their own conclusions, and so limited the scriptures to women of the upper classes, who in turn were restricted to only reading it in the privacy of their own homes. What the wives of Henry VIII show is the pinnacle of a slow decline of women's equality in Britain. Once, women were viewed as equal, capable of rule, but over the years, the value of a woman became more and more inextricably linked with their ability to produce a male heir. This led Henry to desperately and violently work his way through six wives, frantically searching for the one who might give him what he desired. And yet, it would be those women that would get the final word. Henry's only surviving, legitimate son only reigned for six years, before dying at age 15. His death began a struggle for the throne whose main players were all women. First, Lady Jane Grey reigned for nine days, before being executed by the daughter of Henry VIII's first wife. She would become queen, reign for five years, and garner the title Bloody Mary. When she died, her half-sister Elizabeth would ascend to the throne. Her mother had been Anne Boleyn, the first British queen to ever be executed, and she had to rise above the death of her mother, the rejection of her father and brother, and the violent hatred of her sister to rule. Upon her accession, while celebrated by the vast majority of British people, there were those that despised the idea of a female ruler. Like John Knox, a prominent theologian, 
who wrote that female rulers were repugnant to nature and were foolish, mad and frenetic when compared to men. Elizabeth realised the powerful effect marriage would have on her rule. In Tudor Britain, while the sovereign had dominion over the nation, a husband had dominion over his wife, whether she was queen or not. Thus, she branded herself as a virgin queen, a title that was just as political as it was pious. This perceived chastity and purity presented her as a queen married to her people, and that all her motivations, decisions and acts were as pure as she was. A cult grew up around this image, attracting support for her reign, but also bringing in those who wished to undermine her. People like William Allen, Cardinal of England, who, in 1588, accused her of being a serial fornicator, overcome with filthy lust. She would rule for 45 years, becoming known as one of the most powerful and effective queens Britain has ever had. She would overcome adversity, sexual inequality, the pressure to marry and reproduce, and a war with Spain, to rule with a competency and efficacy that would gain her the name Good Queen Bess. As the years rolled on, and despite having another queen, Anne, under whom the United Kingdom was actually founded, the status of women stayed relatively similar to what it had been during the Tudor era. In fact, there may have even been a slight downturn, as the Industrial Revolution, beginning in around 1760, began to take women out of the roles of running farms, and remove the home as a crucial part in the production line. These economic roles had once given them a level of equality with their husbands, but as capitalism took hold, the husbands became the main breadwinners, Wealthier women were confined to domestic lives looking after servants, and poorer women were forced to take jobs that were poorly paid. It was into this world that Mary Wollstonecraft was born. Growing up in a home with an abusive father who squandered their finances and led them into poverty, Wollstonecraft quickly learned to fend for herself, going to school, getting jobs as ladies' companions and as a governess. It was as a governess that she first pursued a career as an author, writing that she would become the first of a new genus, a woman who could make a living from writing. Speaking from experience, she wrote numerous works on the structure of society and the inequality of women, especially those of poorer yet respectable backgrounds. She wrote to pioneer equality in education. In her most well-known and prominent work, The Vindication of the Rights of Women, she repeatedly rails against the idea that women are irrational or foolish or overly emotional, unable to function as a relevant member of adult society. She fights for equal education of men and women, but despite it causing some considerable controversy when it was first published, it failed to bring about any immediate reforms. It has now, however, become one of the most influential works of literature in the modern feminism movement. In fact, her daughter would become one of the most prominent authors of her time, and is still regarded as a pioneer of gothic fiction. She was Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. Just 20 years after Vindication was published, Jane Austen released her first novel. Austen used her work to emphasise the inequality in the societal status of men and women, emphasising the pressure there was to marry, having her characters, both male and female, 
navigate this world. While her female characters were strong and spirited, none can be said to have fought for women's rights or challenged the universal truth of marriage and domestic roles. And yet, in their very creation, in the publishing of her novels and her work as an author, Austen was radical. Women were not meant to write novels, much less have them published. Many would take male pen names to disguise their work. Austen was the exception. She chose not to marry, turning down a proposal a day after accepting it, choosing rather to write. She opened the gates for more freedom in novel writing and publishing. She became, whether she intended it or not, a pioneer for female authors. At this time, Britain was also under the rule of another queen. Born in 1819, Victoria would go on to become one of the longest reigning monarchs in British history. The Victorian world, rather ironically, was highly patriarchal. Similar ideas from the medieval and Tudor eras persisted, with the role of women being that of dutiful housewife. Women would learn domestic tasks like weaving, cleaning, washing and cooking in preparation for marriage. Most often, women would not be able to attain an education outside of the home. There was a tremendous pressure on women to walk the very fine tightrope of expectation. The ideal Victorian woman was virtuous, innocent and dutiful, and spent the majority of their pre-marriage lives training and preparing to live this out for a husband. Only women of the poorer classes were allowed to work, with higher class women being expected to stay home, look after the children and pursue the accepted outlets of feminine creativity. Victoria herself was no feminist. She even wrote of her position as queen in 1852 that we women are not made for governing and if we are good women, we must dislike these masculine occupations. She accepted the patriarchal structure, describing the campaign for women's suffrage as mad, wicked folly. However, these were private beliefs and were not circulated publicly until after her death in 1901. And so, whether she wanted it or not, agreed with it or not, she began to be used as a kind of feminist icon. Feminists and women's rights activists at the time leveraged her position and image to further their cause. For example, they would point out the clear and obvious discrepancy in having a female head of state in a nation that didn't give women the vote, a university education until 1869, or the right to retain their own property upon marriage until 1870. She can be seen to be a kind of unwilling feminist, an icon elevated to a pedestal she neither wanted nor necessarily agreed with. In the middle of her reign, from 1853 to 1856, two women would stare war and death in the face and rise to the challenge. Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole would become two of the foremost nurses during the Crimean War. Florence Nightingale was a nurse, social reformer, statistician, and the founder of modern nursing. During the Crimean War, she was in charge of the nursing of British and Allied soldiers. She studied and pioneered standards of sanitation, making sure that injured soldiers were bathed, given clean clothes and food. She purchased towels, brought food from England, cleaned up the kitchens, and got her nurses to maintain clean hospital wards. She and the British government brought in a sanitary commission and improved the methods of ventilation and sewage. 
This successfully reduced the mortality rates and saved thousands of lives over the war years. She became the first woman to be awarded the Order of Merit in 1907 and became an icon. During the same war, Mary Seacole, unaided by the British government, headed over to the Crimea and set up the British Hotel, a place of respite and recovery for injured servicemen. Seacole would even head to the front lines to nurse the wounded. She created an environment where soldiers could recover and recuperate in safety and kindness, gaining her the name Mother Seacole. In fact, Nightingale and Seacole met, with Seacole staying in Nightingale's hospital for a night on her way to Balaclava. They were friendly and remained in contact in Balaclava. The Victorian era was a time of numerous women doing some incredible things that widely went unnoticed until much later. People like Ada Lovelace, who became the first computer programmer and tech visionary, outlining ideas for numerous computer programs. She was praised by Charles Babbage, her friend and fellow tech pioneer. And yet her achievements weren't fully known until the 1950s, when her notes were found and republished. After Queen Victoria died in 1901, King Edward VII ascended to the throne. And despite this now being the Edwardian era, the world was still very Victorian. And yet it would be now that the fight for women's suffrage would come to a head. In 1903, the Women's Social and Political Union was formed in the home of Emmeline Pankhurst. They would become known as the Suffragettes. For the next 11 years, they would wreak havoc in a monumental campaign for equal rights. When the First World War broke out, they would put this on hold in order to serve their country and aid the war effort. This suffragette movement was full of incredible women ready to go to any lengths to secure their rights. Emmeline Pankhurst, Ethel Smythe and Emily Wilder Davison were just three. Pankhurst was one of the founders and organisers of the movement, realising the power a force of enfranchised women could have. As she said in one of her speeches, women are very slow to rouse, but once they are aroused, once they are determined, nothing on earth and nothing in heaven will make women give way. It is impossible. She became the driving force behind the movement, encouraging militant tactics, seeing it as one of the only ways to gain attention and to bring about change. She said in a speech in 1913, We were called militant, and we were quite willing to accept the name. We were determined to press this question of the enfranchisement of women to the point where we were no longer to be ignored by the politicians. To aid her in this campaign, she called upon Ethel Smythe, a composer and member of the Women's Social and Political Union. Her piece, The March of the Women, became the anthem for the movement. She overcame rejection, being marginalised and overlooked in a field that was male-dominated. Women weren't supposed to be composers, let alone ones of any quality. The suffragettes' radical actions came to a fatal crescendo in 1913. During the Epsom Derby, Emily Wilder Davison stepped out in front of the king's horse in the ultimate act of protest. She would die four days later from her injuries. 
As the First World War broke out in 1914, the suffragettes suspended their militant campaign to help the war effort. For many women, this was the first time they'd ever had a paid job, and by the end of the war, there were over 5 million women in work. Women were not allowed to serve in the armed forces, and were forbidden to be on the front lines. Some, however, desperate to play their part, found their own ways to head to the trenches. Women like Dorothy Lawrence, who, as a journalist, applied at numerous London papers to become a war correspondent. She was refused at them all. So she made her own way over to France, and with the help of a number of soldiers, she disguised herself as a man and successfully made it to the trenches. She later turned herself in, knowing that if anything happened to her, her accomplices would be found out and the reputation of the British army undermined. It was women like her that continued to challenge the norm and fight against the structure of society, even as the war raged. And on the 6th of February 1918, the Representation of the People Act was passed and women over 30 were given the vote. This act was an almost direct outcome of seeing how the war had brought everyone together, how women had stepped up in the men's stead and carried the weight. The act is even introduced as such, with the Home Secretary stating that War, by all classes of our countrymen, has brought us nearer together, has opened men's eyes and removed misunderstandings on all sides. It has made it, I think, impossible that ever again, at all events in the lifetime of the present generation, there should be a revival of the old class feeling, which was responsible for so much and, among other things, for the exclusion, for a period, of so many of our population from the class of electors. I think I need say no more to justify this extension of the franchise. And yet, that still left the majority of women unable to vote. So the campaigns continued, and it wasn't until 1928 that all women were allowed the vote when the Representation of the People Equal Franchise Act was passed. As the years rolled on and the world descended into war once more, women were again called into the workforce en masse. Many women worked in the factories producing munitions and equipment, but for the first time, women were also drafted into military service. Many served as Wrens, the Women's Royal Naval Service, in the Auxiliary Air Force, and auxiliary territorial service. They would work as code breakers, technicians, searchlight operators, manning anti-aircraft guns, plotting maps and plans, being nurses, doctors, and even spies, like Odette Hallows and Nancy Wake, who served for the SOE during the war, embedded into resistance groups in France. In the post-war years, women were praised for their role in the war effort, but were ultimately expected to return to their homes and leave the jobs for the returning men. By 1951, the number of working women had fallen to almost the same level as it had been before the war, and a bar on married women working persisted in many jobs. However, unlike the 1920s had been, the late 40s and 50s were a time of increased economic growth, with the post-war reconstruction demanding a larger workforce. 
the government began to encourage women to enter into the labour market and encouraged migration of workers from the former British colonies. And as the 50s wore on, the number of women being employed slowly increased. And yet, despite all this, they were still being paid significantly less than their male counterparts. The first to win equal pay were female teachers and some female civil servants in 1961 and 62, respectively. But these victories only applied to those in the exact same jobs as men. For those women working as typists, secretaries and cleaners, all female-only occupations, pay stayed the same, and they were excluded from the debate. It was at this time, on the 2nd of June 1953, that Britain once more had a queen. Queen Elizabeth II ascended to the throne, picking up the reins from her father. She will become the longest reigning monarch in British history, the longest reigning female monarch in world history, and oversee wars, scandals, political changes, decolonization, and the turn of the millennia. During her reign, numerous acts were passed for the betterment of women, like the Equal Pay Act of 1970, that prohibited any less favourable treatment between men and women in pay and conditions of employment. The Sex Discrimination Act of 1975, that protected people from discrimination on the grounds of sex or marital status, and the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which the United Kingdom signed in 1981. In the later part of her reign, the Queen pushed through the Succession to the Crown Act in 2013 that allowed any firstborn heir, no matter their sex, to ascend to the throne. During the 70s, 80s and 90s, the Queen was joined by the first female Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. While many feminists would dismiss Thatcher as a figurehead as she avoided the topic of feminism and expressed a more masculine style, she did what no woman had done before, becoming Prime Minister. During her 11 years in office, however, she only promoted one woman to cabinet and preferred to promote men, prompting many feminists to argue that she is no icon or figurehead for women at all. As Hadley Freeman from The Guardian wrote, she wasn't a feminist icon and she wasn't an icon for women. Any attempts at revisionism do no favours to her, women, or feminism. To claim that any woman's success is a boon for feminism is like saying all publicity is good publicity. Seeing as women aren't a minor Brit flick grateful for even a bad review, that truism doesn't quite hold true here. She was a Prime Minister who happened to be a woman. It's how she would have, if pressed, put it herself. At the same time, however, feminists can find an icon in Princess Diana. She reinvented what it meant to be a female royal. She made the royal family more approachable, more relaxed. She stood up for herself and for what she believed in, confronting Charles numerous times about his affair with Camilla, even confronting Camilla herself, claiming that she wouldn't take the disrespect any longer. She was an advocate and humanitarian, and patron of numerous projects and charities. She earned the title of The People's Princess through being just that. As the years have rolled on, the discussion around feminism, women's rights, 
equal pay and equal treatment have continued, and they won't finish anytime soon. Today, it is important to know where we've come from to better understand what the debates are about, what the causes are, and how we might step into a better future for all. Thank you very much for listening to the Present History Podcast. I hope this has been enlightening, helpful, and empowering. But once again, don't leave it here. There is so much more research you can do. We'll see you next time on the next installment of the Present History Podcast.